We are coming back to our study of Hebrews. I believe our brother Kevin came and preached in the Gospel of Mark, and we are continuing our study back to Hebrews chapter 8 in the New Covenant. So if you have God's Word, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, and if you recall, we are uh, speaking of the blessings, the blessings of the New Covenant. We have spoken of the necessity of the, old, the New Covenant in verses 7 to 9, and here we are looking at the blessings of the New Covenant, part 1. I'll explain that in just a minute. Well, let me read from verse 10 to all the way to verse 13. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. We bow with me in a word of prayer. O Lord, we plead to you in your loving kindness to pour your holy light into our souls that your word will be made clear, and that Christ in his awesome glory will be revealed to us. Open our eyes to behold the wondrous blessings of the new covenant. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Now there has been a lot of uh, bad movies in recent days. Movies like you just wasted two hours of watching. They don't make movies like they used to back in the days. But one movie that, that I watched had me on the edge of my seat. That movie is called The Covenant. You guys watched that one? Yeah? Although the, the word covenant isn't used much around in our vocabulary today, the movie did a good job in capturing the gravity of covenants between human relations. The film is inspired by many true and tragic stories of Afghan interpreters who worked with the United States military for more than 20 years who were promised visas and then left to fend for themselves after the U.S. withdrew their troops in 2021. Now, this movie shows the intense bond of one American soldier named John Kinley, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, and an Afghan interpreter. The premise of the movie is that the Afghan interpreter fearlessly saves uh, John's life from the Taliban. Then Ahmed, the Afghan interpreter, and his family is left to fend for himself, hunted by the Taliban for corroborating with an American, while John is back at home in the U.S. And John Kinley, out of a sacred responsibility to hold up his end of the bargain to provide Ahmed and his family visas, goes back to find Ahmed and save his family at the risk of losing his own life. Now, this movie was especially riveting because it was a movie that I watched on my flight back traveling through Israel and Palestine land, and I couldn't help but think of the scenes and the places that I had just witnessed. But it was also moving because I had the studies of God's covenants looming in my mind. And at the very end of the movie, there's a definition of the title of the movie that underlines the thesis of the movie. The word covenant, defined as a bond, a pledge, a commitment. And this is what we began to define covenant two weeks ago. That a covenant, at its most basic definition, is a solemn agreement. But we made certain to point out that God's covenant with man 
do not meet on equal terms. God covenants with man are not like the ones amongst human beings where if you hold up your end of the bargain, then I will hold up mine. There is no discussing of the terms of the covenant. It is God and God alone who initiates the covenants. The terms are His. Moreover, it is God Himself who fulfills the covenant. And this is what God has been doing from the very beginning with the fall of Adam. God has come to establish His eternal and immutable covenant of grace. And so we affirm that the unity of the covenants, the unity of the covenants, how God has worked out His plan of redemption throughout the ages through the various covenants. And so the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenants do not present themselves as self-contained entities. Instead, each successive covenant builds on the previous relationship, continuing how God will build a people for Himself. Now, inasmuch as we affirm the unity of the various covenants, the author of Hebrews emphatically points out the distinction the discontinuity with the old and new covenant. This was his argument for bringing up the new covenant in the first place. He said in verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. What was so faulty about the old covenant? The old covenant was founded on the principle of merit. It was serve God and you will be rewarded for it. Right? If you walk perfectly in God's commandments, God will walk with you. The old covenant's purpose was never meant to save. It set before Israel an objective standard through the giving of the law, but it communicated no power for them to measure up to it. So that the old covenant fell to the ground, not because the law was bad or faulty, but because the faultiness lay in the people's hearts. The Israelites in their sinful nature, nature was sure to sin, and sure to fail. And so they broke the covenant. The law was never meant to save. Its purpose was that of a tutor to drive them to Christ. Now while we are all covenant breakers here tonight, our hearts are filled with thanksgiving, with joy this evening to know that our Lord and God is a covenant keeper. He is able to keep the promise that He has made no matter what. A promise that God would have a people for himself. And though we have broken the marriage co covenant, God prepared a new covenant in which his promise would be fulfilled. This new covenant would not be founded on the principle of merit, but on the principle of pure grace, because of the requirement of the covenant would be fulfilled only by Jesus Christ. If the Hebrew Christians in whom the author was writing to would just understand this, that they were, they were God's covenant people through the merits of Jesus Christ alone in the new covenant, what a boon it would have been to them. Why? Why? They wouldn't be tempted to go back to the old covenant, but they would go on with new vigor in the Christian life. To forsake the new covenant blessings for the old would be to forsake all. And thus the message has always been to these people, don't go back realize the blessings that you now have in Christ. What are the blessings of being God's people? What have I received from God as being part of the new covenant? This is the question that we'll take up this evening. And there are five blessings that the new covenant promises that are ours in Christ. We're going to cover two this evening and three 
next week. Well, the first blessing that is promised in the new covenant is unification. That is the bringing together of all of God's people into one redeemed race. Now, because we tend to emphasize the personal blessings that the new covenant comes to us, the new covenant is viewed as a triumph of individualism. But this is to misread the emphasis of the new covenant. The promise is not an individual promise, but it's a corporate promise. Look at verse 8. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, by the time Jeremiah wrote this prophecy, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been exiled in, by Assyria in 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah experienced the final hammer of being exiled to Babylon in 586 BC. And these two kingdoms had never come together again. And this first blessing of the new covenant sees a time when there will be no more division between the northern and the southern tribes. I want you to turn to Jeremiah 3, 17 to 18. Jeremiah 3, 17 to 18. The first promise mentioned of unification in the passage that talks about the new covenant is right at the beginning of the book. Jeremiah 3, look at verse 17. It says, at that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their heart and their evil heart. In those days, the future days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Now turn with me to the end of Jeremiah chapter 50. As this promise of unification will be repeated at the end of this book. Jeremiah 50 and look at verse 4. It says, in those days, talking about a future period, and that time declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well. They will go along weeping as they go, and it will be the Lord their God they will seek. They will ask for the way to Zion, turning their faces in its direction. They will come that they may join themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. There again is the promise of unification. I want you to turn to Ezekiel now, a prophet also who has spoke extensively of the new covenant. And go to Ezekiel 37. Now, by astute Bible readers that you are, know that Ezekiel 37 is the famous chapter of the Valley of the Dry Bones where Ezekiel looks forward to a day when the Spirit will revive the dry, dry bones of Israel. And at the beginning of verse 16, Ezekiel recognizes the division between Israel and Judah that is represented by two sticks. Look at what it says. And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. He then speaks of the reunion of the two sticks 
that have been separated from one another, look at verse 17. Then join them for yourself one uh, to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. Then the Lord gives the explanation of the two sticks into one. Look at verse 21. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations, and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any other transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And then Ezekiel will go on to speak of this one nation under one king as the shepherd king of the Davidic line. Look at verse 24. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Now, who is this shepherd king of David? But the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. He is the one who fulfills the new covenant. These words about having one shepherd may have brought to your memory those words from Jesus himself when he said in John chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, he says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus Christ, who lays down his life for the sheep, unites in himself all the various sheep into a single fold. So not only does Jesus Christ unite the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel into one, he also unites Gentiles with them. The other sheep who are not Israelites will come from Gentile nations to become one flock. This too is the blessing of the new covenant that it extends beyond Israel to all the nations under heaven. Every tongue, every tribe, every language are now invited to Christ by the gospel. This is why the apostle Peter, he stood up and preached in the day of Pentecost, and he said in Acts 2.39, For the promise is for you and your children, Israelites, and for all who are far off, Gentiles, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Beloved, the Apostle Paul speaks of the same blessing of the new covenant, where in Ephesians 3, he describes how the church is a mystery, once concealed but now revealed. The mystery is that through the gospel, Gentiles like you and me are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. But the astute student of God's word and perhaps member of Pillar Baptist Church that you are says, now hold on a second, I've combed through Pillar's statement of faith, and I've noticed at the very end in the section of the last things, it is written there, we believe God's promise to Israel will be fulfilled in the future restoration of its people. Can you explain to me how you believe there's a future for Israel when you just said how there's one people of God? Well, it seems like you are talking that like there are two people of God, the church and Israel, and not one. To keep it simple, the promises of the new covenant 
have seen its partial fulfillment in the church, but it has not been fully fulfilled. The complete fulfillment of the new covenant awaits a future day where Jeremiah speaks of, in those days the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. That day has not come yet. And any attempts to spiritualize this text violates the intent of Jeremiah. The passage in the New Testament that best explains this truth is Romans 11. While I cannot go into the details of this great text, the Apostle Paul illustrates how Gentile believers are grafted into the good olive tree, and he says how presently the natural branches, that is Israel, have been broken off. Yet the Jewish branches will someday be grafted back in, and God's new covenant will find its ultimate fulfillment as Jeremiah prophesied. The point is this. The olive tree depicts the one people of God. And that both Jewish and Gentile branches are all on the same tree. We don't have two different trees that somehow merge. Rather, we have branches from different ethnic backgrounds, both Jew and Gentile, which now form in one tree in Jesus Christ. You see, while at this moment, by God's grace, Gentiles have been grafted into the tree. We are awaiting the day when the natural branches will, de- will be grafted back in so that there will be u- reunited one people of God, heirs together, members together, and shares together. The end of Hebrews speaks of this day. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. If you get anything else from this, just know that. There is just one people of God. God is reuniting everyone to himself in Christ. That is the blessing of the new covenant. Go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. It says, To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect. The author of Hebrews speaks of a day in the future congregation of God, assembled around the exalted Christ in heaven, comprising of the whole of God's people, Israelites and Gentiles. And did you notice the name that was given to this eschatological future people of God gathered around the throne in heaven? The church of the firstborn. You see, there is only one flock of God, one people of God, one church one house of God, whether Jew or Gentile, we are all members of Christ's church insofar as we are members in Christ Jesus because He is the seed of Abraham in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed and reunited. What God accomplishes through Christ in the new covenant is nothing less than the reconciliation of the world to Himself. One very quick word of implication from this first blessing If unification and reconciliation is the first blessing of the new covenant, we as members of Christ's body must do what Hebrews 13.1 says, let brotherly love continue. You see, you are not simply in a covenant with the Lord, but you are also in covenant 
with the members of Christ's body. For the word says, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now as pillar is getting bigger, on Sundays it feels like we are a mega church, right? But as we're getting bigger, there is more room for divisions. More temptations to create our own churches within the church. More tendencies to assume things of one another and misunderstand each other. And inevitably, there will be more sin committed towards one another. But we must not let these things divide us. We must not let our personal agendas and feelings drive a wedge between one another. But we must work diligently to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For not to do so would be to rent asunder the very blessing of the unification which the New New Covenant speaks of. Let us remember then that as the church, we're the family of God. The church is to be characterized by Christian and family love. And we can. And we must work for the to preserve the unity of the Spirit because of the second blessing that is promised in the New Covenant. Go back to Hebrews. And that promise is regeneration. That blessing is regeneration. There are three different dimensions of this that I like to point out. The first is radical transformation. Look at verse 10 with me again. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. You see, the problem with the old covenant was that the law was written where? On tablets of stone. If anything was written on the hearts of God's people, it was only their sin. I want you to turn to Jeremiah 17.1. Jeremiah has a rather striking and picturesque way of saying this jeremiah 17 verse 1 it says the sin of judah is written down with an iron stylus with a diamond point it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart (laughs) with all of israel's advantages over the nations She could not keep God's law and was not faithful to the Lord because her heart, like ours, was engraved with sin. Thus the Lord laments the Hebrew nation at Sinai after they affirm all that the Lord said we will do. He said, oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. Ah, that explains the perverseness of their wilderness experience. And that explains the perverseness of every single human heart in history. It is an unregenerate heart. It is a stony heart. A heart that tries to keep the law of God. But it has no power. No delightful affection to keep them. But now with the blessing of the new covenant, God will rewrite the hearts of his people. And on that stony heart, God will put his laws in their minds and he will write it on their hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26 speaks to the same blessing when the Lord says, I will give to you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh 
And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, capital S, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. This work of regeneration is none other than the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, according to John 3, that brings about the new birth. But notice, dear friends, both covenants, the old and the new, demand obedience to the law. The difference is that the new covenant brings the law from the outside to the inside. Rather than being administered externally, the law is now administered from within the heart. And the supreme principle of the law is love to God and love to one another. God has now put his law in our hearts so that we can now say with the Apostle Paul, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, Romans 7.22. And if you are a Christian here today, I trust you know the difference between the law of God written in stone and the law of God written on your hearts. Now just to give you a personal illustration of my own life, I grew up in a strict Sabbatarian home. I grew up understanding that on Sunday we were required to go to church. We never missed a Sunday. Sure, as a kid, I loved going to church because I loved seeing my friends and playing cops and robbers and playing basketball after church. But as I reached my youth, Sunday used to be the worst day of my life, of the week. I dreaded it. But the day I trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, Sunday was the best day of the week. And has been ever since. How could that be? Because I was no longer trying to keep the law from a stony heart, you see. But God in His grace had written the law on my heart. What was before regarded as a bondage is now found to be the truest liberty. What was before an irksome task is now the greatest delight. I believe this is one sure sign that you are a Christian. If you have faith in Christ, you have at least experienced and felt something of this. You start wanting to do things that you never wanted to do before. You find yourself eagerly attending church, reading the Bible, and praying, and forsaking more and more evil, and, and, and leading to Christ that leads to holiness. The contrast is so radical, and this is what we find referred to often in the New Testament. There is no better Word of this, then in Galatians 2.20, and I like the King James Version of this, where it says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, there it is. We love to sing of it. I live, yet not I. Paul has become an enigma to himself, a puzzle to himself. He is amazed at what he has become. He's the same man, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was a persecutor, a blasphemer, a murderer. But he is now an apostle of Jesus Christ. Yet he's the same man. I am, I am not. I live, yet not I. We, like Paul, remain the same people. But our hearts have become radically new. Oh, beloved, this is the contrast between fallen human nature and God's nature. It is nothing less than the contrast of being dead and alive. This is what it means for God to write his law upon your hearts, to remove your stony hearts, and to give you a heart of flesh, a heart that is pulsating and beating now for God. 
Does this all astound you? Does this amaze you? Are you amazed that you are a Christian? Have these spiritual matters, living for God and delighting in His law, become the chief thing in your life? Now, I do not mean that this is just another item in your schedule. Five days a week going to work, then Saturday sports and recreation, and on Sunday visiting a place of worship. I do not mean that. It's not one of the items out of the week. No, that's not what I'm talking about. There are people like that. That is merely being religious. It is just an item on the schedule, easily taken off and replaced with another item. What I'm asking is, is this now the big thing in your life? The greatest and chief interest. If it is, you are born again. There is no doubt about it. And when you can affirm that, you are amazed and astonished at yourself. And you can say with Charles Wesley in one of my favorite hymns when he asked, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused this pain for me whom him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Friends, do you know anything of this amazement? Are you astounded by this? If the life of God is in you, then you ought to be amazed. Is this true of you, my friend, this evening? If not, then it means one of two things. Number one, you are a genuine Christian, but you have fallen back to trying to keep God's law externally, to earn the merits of God. And the more that you've tried to keep God's law in this way, the more guilty you felt and frustrated as well. You must come again to the mercy found in Jesus Christ. Come to the fountain of God's grace and be immersed in His love. And only from that position will you be able to love God's law and keep His commandments. For the love of God's commandments comes first and foremost from abiding in Christ. But number two, it may be that you are not a true Christian. Now this must not be taken lightly. If you've never experienced the law written upon your hearts, such that there is no delight to keep it, such that it is a bondage and a dread, oh, then you must come and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. For He says, come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You must believe that based on your own merits, it is impossible to please God and keep His commandments. But God in His love, you need to hear, that sent His only Son in the world to keep the law perfectly on our behalf so that He would die and pay the price of lawbreakers like us. And after three days, He was raised from the dead to give eternal life, the life born by the Spirit for all who would trust in Him. Only the Holy Spirit can change a heart. It is impossible for you to do it. So you must beg to God to change your heart. You must have your Bible open to the page in Hebrews 8.10 and place it before the Lord and plead, O Lord, write your blessed name, O Lord, upon my heart. O Jesus, write your blessed name upon my heart. And so the first dimension of the new covenant blessing of regeneration is that the hearts of the people of God are radically transformed by the Spirit of God. But let me lay out a couple of more dimensions of this blessing of regeneration 
of the new covenant. I want you to notice that the role of the law is not erased in the new covenant. But rather it magnifies the place of God's law in the lives of God's people. See, we, we think that because the new covenant with the gospel promises means that the law is somehow opposed to the gospel. We sometimes assume that the Old, Old Testament salvation came by law, whereas in the New Testament, salvation comes by grace. But the truth is that salvation has always come by grace, and that the law and gospel work together for salvation. The grace of the gospel has never been opposed to the proper use of the law. This is why, you see, the Lord says in the new covenant blessing, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. This law is for those who have been regenerated and redeemed by the blood of Christ. You see, now that we have received the grace of God in the gospel, now that the Spirit has made us alive together with Christ, what comes next? Are we, to, are we free to live as we please? Can we be regenerated and still lead a sinful life? God forbid. We are free indeed, but the freedom we have as sons and daughters of God, is the freedom and liberty to live in a way that is pleasing to God. You know, Martin Luther, the reformer, once explained this principle to one of his students. He had been talking about God's free grace for sinners and how our salvation does not depend upon our good works, but upon the saving work of Jesus Christ. One of his students objected. If what you're saying is true, then... We may live as we want. And Luther replied, yes. Now, what do you want? You see, Luther's point to his student was that if God saved you by his grace, and if God has indeed regenerated you by his spirit, such that he writes his laws on your hearts, what you will now desire to do now is to live a life that is honorable to God by walking joyfully in his holy will. This is why, you see, there is no room for antinomianism in the new covenant. The law is not somehow erased as if we simply live by grace. This is the error that Jew talks about. Rather than ignorance or apathy towards God's law, there is now given a greater internal commitment to the law and an earnest desire for obedience. You see, God's standard has never changed. As if somehow his grace has redefined his righteousness. No, on the contrary, the law expresses the very character of God. And as people of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit has been given to guide and direct our hearts towards holiness. But perhaps you're sitting there and you're still saying, well, I know that I'm a member of the new covenant, but these promises and heart affection laid out is still something that I struggle with. There are many times that I do not feel like obeying God and His law, and I fall back to my old nature and also the lust of my flesh. Still for others, you might say, it seems like the world has a greater str stranglehold on me, and though I know what is right and good, I can't help to feel that I am failing. And if you, you might say, if I were to summarize what I'm going through right now, I can put it no better than the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. 
For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death. We need then to consider this third dimension of the blessing of regeneration in the new covenant. And that is that while this blessing represents a radical change in our hearts, we are still in a process. A process of growing in holiness and will not be perfected until Christ returns. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3. We're going to end up in that one of the most astounding verses in the Bible in verse 18. But before we get there, I want you to note that in this chapter, Paul contrasts the new covenant ministry with the old covenant ministry of Moses. And he makes it clear that it is a process. Now, before we get to that glorious verse in verse 18, Paul begins with three comparisons of the old covenant to the new covenant, following a lesser to the greater line of argumentation. The first comparison is found in verses 7 to 8. The lesser is found in verse 7. It says, but if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. Here is the greater, verse 8. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Paul is saying that the law given from Mount Sinai came with great glory. The glory was so great that it exercised a ministry of judgment and death on Israel. That is why the people feared to gaze upon the reflected glory of Moses' face. And that is why Moses needed a veil to cover his reflected glory. So the argument goes, if Moses' ministry came by such glory that it had to be veiled, how much more glorious is the new covenant ministry of the Spirit that continually exposes God's people to His transforming power? Here's the second comparison. Look at verse 9. Here is the lesser. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, what's the greater glory? Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. This comparison is the same one that Jeremiah and Ezekiel talks about. How the old covenant brought about condemnation. But the new, with the new heart and the new spirit, is a ministry of righteousness. And then look at the third comparison. Paul emphasizes the surpassing glory of the new covenant in verse 11, the lesser in verse 11. For if that which fades away was with glory, the greater, much more that which remains is in glory. Here the comparison is between the temporary nature of the old covenant compared to the eternal and permanent nature of the new covenant. Now, in order to encourage our hearts to the superior advantage of being a member under the new covenant, Paul now gives these remarkable words. Look at verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit 
Paul had just spoken of the glory which appeared in the face of Moses after his intimate encounter with Yahweh on the mount. And so dazzling and so radiating was his glory on his countenance that the children of Israel were afraid to even come near him. He therefore had to put a veil upon his face, and the veil upon Moses' face was symbolic of the blindness and of the hardness of the hearts of the Israelites. And now in contrast with the Old Covenant, Paul tells us that the veil has now been lifted by Christ from our hearts such that the Scriptures now come alive. The Spirit has written His law in our hearts. So now with unveiled face, as we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are, it says, gradually transformed into the glorious image of Christ. Oh, Christian, consider the superior advantages of being a member under the new covenant ministry. Moses, at the height of his spiritual experience, was exposed to the glory of the Lord. It was but temporary. But the new covenant ministry is even more transforming because our exposure is constant and continuous since there is no veil. Clearly, the change is progressive. There is a process in being transformed into the glorious image of Christ. How then does this character transformation take place? Look at verse 16. It occurs when anyone turns to the Lord. When you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, the veil is taken away and you begin to behold the glory of the Lord. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a strong exhortation this is for you and I to come to Jesus Christ daily and behold His glory. You, we must take steps to place ourselves under the ministry of the new covenant in, in the means of grace that God has provided in the reading of God's Word and in prayer Oh, how important it is for us to come to the corporate gathering of the body to see Christ in His Word preached and sung because it is as you are willing to be exposed to the sunlight of Christ's presence will His image then burn ever deeper into our character and our will. This is the superior advantage and the superior blessing of the new covenant that we've been given the Holy Spirit to transform us day by day to the glorious image of Jesus Christ. Do you believe this? Do you have faith in this? That if you turn to the Lord and behold His glory, you will look more and more like His Son. When the Lord saves a sinner, He changes His heart. What once was hateful to Him, now He loves. Spurgeon told a most interesting story about this theme. A friend of Spurgeon's gave him an expensive walking stick. It was made of ebony with gold head and California quartz worked into it. The gift must have been costly. But one night, a thief broke into Mr. Spurgeon's home and stole the precious gift, which meant much to Spurgeon because it was gift from his dear friend. The thief took a portion of the stolen item to the pawnbroker he had broken the head off and battered it, but all of his hammering 
could not hide the word Spurgeon. The thief got away, but the shop owner returned the gold to Pastor Spurgeon, who said, though the man hammered it, there was my name, and the gold was bound to come back to me. And so it did. And Spurgeon then pressed the point of the illustration. He says, now when the Lord once writes his name in your heart, he writes his law within you. And though the devil may batter you, God will claim you as his own. Temptation and sin may assail you. But if the law of the Lord is in your heart, you shall not give way to sin. You shall resist it. You shall be preserved. You shall be kept. For you are the Lord's. Beloved, let us take heart. We are the Lord's. He has written his law and his name on your hearts. He has written his law within you. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we praise you for your perfect and wise plan to save us through your son, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of a better covenant. You have provided blessings of reconciliation in Christ and the blessings of regeneration by the power of the Holy Spirit. Surely our cup of blessings is full and our cup of thanksgiving should overflow. But Lord, we confess that this is often not true. How quick we are to forget your mercies, to neglect your graces, fail to remember that we've been born again by your spirit. How easily we speak, speak ill of one another. Instead of love, we harbor hate. Instead of mercy, we resent and become bitter. Have mercy on us, Lord, for the sake of your son and cause us with an unveiled face to turn to the Lord and transform more and more into the image of our glorious Redeemer, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.